0: How's everybody doing this morning? Are you? Good. We, uh, this is our second Christmas in the Valley for Kim and I and our kids, and I gotta tell you, we're starting to get into the spirit a little bit, like a lot of you. Uh, you know, if you're from the Midwest, and I find that most people in Arizona either have come from the Midwest or, or from California, that type of thing. It's a real hodgepodge of a bunch of us from all over the United States. And, you know, if you're from the Midwest, you're used to seeing Christmas lights on Trees, right? But here we put Christmas lights on cacti. Isn't that wild? And uh, so I have a meteorologist friend back in Cleveland. He's one of the second most popular meteorologists in all of Cleveland. His name's Andre Bernier and he's on Fox uh, television, and he's a godly, wonderful Christian man, very involved in the church that I left there a year ago, and we've been staying in touch, and so I was out the other night walking in my neighborhood and watching all these cacti with lights on them, and, I, and so uh, Andre's really into Christmas lights, so I was snapping some pictures of uh, you know, the, the cacti, and I sent one to him, and, and all he did was sent me an email back, and, and it simply said this, it said, Dear Jamie, that is so wrong, Andre. Ha <laughs> And I understand that because like when I first got here I thought the same thing. I thought, you know, Why, that's goofy, lights on a cactus, I mean what's that about? And, uh, and yet then you're here long enough and you go, well where else are you going to put them, right? I mean there's like a lot of cacti, you got a lot of lights, so dress them up. And uh, you kind of get into the Christmas thing after a while when you do that. And so uh, Merry Christmas, we uh, hope to usher all of us into the Christmas season pretty well here at Scottsdale Bible over the next few weeks. Now. Before we get into our message time, i got to let you know we're off by one week. And what I mean by that is that as I was planning the whole year, and if you've noticed, we've studied 1 Peter, like the real bulk of this year. We started off with Esther and then moved into First Peter. And I had planned uh, it perfectly, like down to the week that we would end last week with First Peter so that we could usher in Advent. But then, as you might have noticed, I got off base one week. I, I kind of made one of our messages a two-parter, and I said, don't worry, we got some margin. Well, now is the margin, and so we enter into Advent, but I don't got an Advent message for you. We're going to wrap up First Peter today, and so if you can just give me a little bit of liberty there, then I promise you next week and the week after we're going to usher into some Christmas messages and focus us on the season, but today we're going to talk about a really, really important topic that quite frankly has a lot to do with who Jesus was himself, all right? So why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, God, that we have seasons in this world that you made and that uh, in these seasons we can celebrate certain aspects of our spiritual lives as well. So during the uh, winter season here, even in the desert, we are celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. And then come spring, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the one who showed victory over death uh, for our sin, that we might be forgiven. And so God, we thank you for... Uh, the different seasons you've given us and how we can equate these even to our spiritual lives. So today, God, as we usher in Christmas and we talk about this idea of humility, I pray, God, that you might help us make the link that as Jesus was humble, that we also can be humble. Teach us what that is. Help us to be that, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Well, as I kind of mentioned in my prayer there, as we get to the end of our study here on the New Testament book of 1 Peter, we're going to talk today about humility, about humility. And I can't think of anybody more qualified to talk about humility than me, amen? No, that's not true, don't believe that. I remember years ago when I gave my first talk on humility, I was in my first church there, it was years ago, and I was... Gonna do a talk on humility, and my brother-in-law, Kim's oldest brother, found out about it. She was telling him this on the telephone, and he said, "Well, I guess he's gonna have to study real hard for that one." And uh, and that's the way humility is. Have you found that yet in this life? I, I mean, there's a twofold problem with this thing called humility that faces each and every one of us, and that is, and on the one hand, it's like a really hard character trait to attain. Have you found that? I mean, like really hard to finally get to the point in your life when you have a truly right estimation of yourself compared to God and others, and you live it. But then on the second hand, I find that if you finally do get humble, if you admit it to anyone or start to feel good about it, you just lost it. Amen? And so it's like you're sunk if you do, you're sunk if you don't, when it comes to this thing called humility. But not really. But not really. Because though it is true, folks, that most humble people really don't know it, I mean, that's part of their humility, we also learn that it's really possible to get humble and to attain humility, and that, quite frankly, it's a life-altering trait when it comes to our relationship with God, our relationships with those around us, and even, as we're going to see today, life-altering to our own souls. And 1 Peter, this book that we're wrapping up here today at Scottsdale Bible Church, caps off uh, our look by walking us through a little bit about what humility is all about. And so don't miss three truisms. That Peter tells us that become real for each of us when we're in a humble state. Three things that Peter wraps up this book with that become true about us when we're humble. And so these things become kind of a barometer for humility for you and for me. And the first thing is simply this, that when you are humble, you recognize who God is and who you aren't. Did you know that? When you're humble and when I'm humble, we are recognizing who God is and who we aren't. And so look at how Peter begins his closing discussion here in verse 6 of chapter 5. He says, "Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you." Now, focus on those two key phrases there, "humble yourselves" and then "the mighty hand of God." It's fascinating. That word "humble" here is the Greek word tapenao, and it literally means to be lower, to be lower That's what most of us think of when we think of humility, right? Kind of somebody that's sort of lower than others around them. And yet when you look at how this word is used some 16 times in the New Testament, you walk away with the idea that what God is really getting at is simply to have a view of yourself that is accurate. Or as I like to say, to have a right estimation of yourself, which quite frankly is usually lower for most of us who are prideful, and then to act accordingly. And so I think Paul the Apostle nailed it, folks, when he said in Romans 12, verse 3, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. To think of yourself as God does, to see yourself as you really are. To think of yourself rightly in light of known transcendent truth and reality. That's humility, don't miss this, a right estimation of oneself, to see yourself as God does in light of who he is. And yet we're not done yet in our understanding of humility, because once you get this, then the question becomes, well, how do you know what this right estimation of yourself is, right? I mean, how do you accurately evaluate who you are and how you should think about yourself? And this is where Peter's second phrase comes in when he says to place yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do you see that there? Under the mighty hand of God. And so he's saying that you get a humble view of yourself, a right estimation of who you really are when you place yourself under God's light, under his mighty hand. Don't miss this, folks. Peter is telling us here that when we dare to stand next to God, when we dare to understand who humanity is, and by extension you and me, by placing our lives under his magnitude, his majesty, his holiness, his truth, then and only then are you going to have a right understanding of who you are. Make the link here. Humble yourself, have this right understanding of who you are by placing yourself under his mighty hand, by comparing yourself to God by allowing his majesty to reflect to you who you really are. I I love the story that Gary Thomas tells in his book, The Beautiful Fight. Uh, This is great. Listen to what he says. He says, A businessman in a service industry grew weary of being yelled at. He tired of getting sprayed with angry spittle from dissatisfied customers who expected five-star service at a Motel 6 price. One day he became oddly detached during yet another customer tirade. He felt as though he were watching a movie. In fact, he couldn't help but think that the angry woman's antics made her look like a monkey. Thomas goes on to say that observation gave him a brilliant idea. He posted a giant mirror behind the front of the desk, and ironically, the customer's tirades all but ceased. He says when people saw how rude and hateful they looked while yelling and screaming, they stopped yelling and screaming. Isn't that amazing? I mean, such a simple trick, to put a mirror in front of a complaint office so that people could see what they look like when they're complaining. And folks, when you think about it, this would make sense, that we all know, ourselves and other people, that when a person sees what he or she is really and truly looking and acting like, many times this can change their perspective on how they're coming across and who they really are. And what you need to know is that Peter is saying the exact same thing when it comes to God here. He's telling you and me that when we stand next to him, when we place ourselves under his mighty hand, we're like standing next to a mirror. And that we get a much clearer view of who we really are and who he really is. And so the only question becomes at that point, well, what is it that we see, right? I mean, if it's true that humility is placing ourselves under God's mighty hand so that the reflection shows us who we are and who he is, then what is it that we see when we're reflected by his majesty and his grace and his truth? Well, let's go through the list real quickly, okay? And first thing that you see, the Bible tells us, when you place yourself under God's mighty hand is that you see yourself as a created being. A created being made in the image of Almighty God with a capacity to know that you know and to reflect meaningfully upon your existence. But tell me if this isn't true. In so doing this, you also see yourself as not just created, but because created, very, very finite. Amen? You see yourself as very, very finite. In other words, when you stand next to God, one of the things that you realize is that though you might be made like Him, that you aren't Him. That he is infinite and you are finite with all the limitations and frailties that go along with being finite. I love how the great theologian Reinhold Niebuhr said it years ago. He said when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. And it's true. I mean, when finiteness looks into infiniteness, you get overwhelmed. You go, my gosh, I'm not that. I have limitations. I have frailties. So, so my, God is God. I am who I am. And so we're going to see humility starts to set in. That's the first thing you see when you place yourself under his mighty hand. But then get this, as you stay standing next to God, you realize that in addition to being a created being, you're also a fallen being, right? Subject to sin and all of its effects. In other words, by being under his mighty hand, you realize that he is good and perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful, and that by converse... (laughs) You are not always good, never perfect in anything, but all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. In other words, you didn't see the credit crunch coming. You didn't predict the downturn in the economy, at least the timing of it, and you have no idea who's going to win the Super Bowl this year. Though I think we can safely say, not the Cleveland Browns, amen? But the reality is, is you don't know half of what you think you know. And even when I hear people arrogantly say, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, they have no clue whether it's really going to happen. And many times, let's be honest with ourselves, we're wrong. But the reality is God's never wrong. And we start to realize that. And by the way, these are the benign things. For in addition to realizing that you aren't all-knowing and all-wise, you also realize that compared to God's goodness and greatness, that you fall very, very short, right? I mean, that's what we realize when we go through these times. You tell lots of untruths in your life. while you realize that God, all he does is tell the truth. You realize that you lose it while God holds it together, that you're impatient while he's long-suffering, and that you struggle with morality while he never skips a beat when it comes to morality in his life. Please see, folks, the mirror of his mighty hand begins to reflect to you who you are. You're created and finite, and you're fallen, falling way short of even his design and will for your life. And then as you say standing, under his mighty hand long enough, you realize that though there have been thousands of times in your life when you didn't extend grace when you could have, that he has extended to you the most incredible grace ever. And it's exactly what Christmas is about. The giving of his son Jesus for a sacrifice for your sin so that realities like redemption and forgiveness and eternal life and a new lease on life now can be yours through Jesus Christ. And so add all this up. Give me another click here, guys. You realize you're a created being and finite. You realize that you're a fallen being and sinful. You realize that you're a forgiven being and and that God has pronounced redemption upon your life. Don't miss the very first thing Peter wants us to know about humility is that when you are in the sweet spot, it's because you have placed yourself under his mighty hand and by so doing, you are recognizing who he is and who you aren't. And as a result of this, don't miss this, It creates a right estimation of who you are, created and finite, fallen but massively loved, and then redeemed, forgiven in Jesus Christ. And before you know it, and I find even many times without even knowing it, you're becoming humble, you're becoming the godly man that he wants you to be, simply by drawing close to God. But this is just the beginning. Because believe it or not, at this point, and this is quite frankly where a lot of Christians stop, you're still just at Humility 101. You really are. You're still just in the freshman year of humility. Peter says there's more, like much more. So notice the second trait that Peter tells us about here that becomes yours when you're humble, and that is that you are very honest about your fears and your shortcomings. You're going to like this one. When you are humble, you are very honest, Peter says, about your fears and your shortcomings. And so look at how he goes on in this wrap-up on humility in verse 7 of 1 Peter 5. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And now folks, let's admit it. If you've been around the Christian block more than once, you have heard this passage before, Right? Like this is one of those super popular passages that if you go to Bible study or go to Christian therapy or go to many sermons, you're going to hear this passage. Cast all your anxieties on him. Cast all your anxieties on him. I mean, we use this passage all the time. But what I find fascinating is that most people don't understand the context of this passage, and so they really have robbed themselves of what God is really trying to get at in this passage here. In other words, notice that the context here is not God telling us to cast our anxieties on him as just sort of some cathartic exercise to make us feel better about ourselves or something like that, which is how I hear most people use it. No, the context here is in a discussion of what? Humility. In other words, God tells us to cast all our anxieties upon him in order to help create more of a humble kind of people to create humility inside each of us. And so how does that work? Well, notice that he first begins by telling us to get honest about our inner fears, insecurities, and anxieties. You know what I'm talking about, the things that weigh you and me down and nag us all day long. The things that you don't want to admit, let alone talk about, but that we all know that we have. And isn't it fascinating that Peter is assuming here that we all have them? (laughs) He's saying cast your anxieties on him he's not saying if you have any anxieties or if and when the anxieties come or hey you used to have anxieties but now that you're a christian or something goofy like that no he's assuming that all of us have these inner anxieties fears and insecurities and so he's saying get honest about them he's assuming that the fall of humankind has hit each and every one of us and so no matter how much you try to put on a good show he's not buying it come clean That's what he's assuming in this passage here. And once you've gotten that far, once you hear that, then it's very interesting that he tells us what to do with these fears and shortcomings. He says to cast them upon God. To cast them on God. That word cast here is an interesting word. In the original language that the Bible was interested in, or written in, it literally means to take something that is precious to you, and I get this, and to grab it from yourself and to throw it over Someone or something. That's the word picture here. And this word is used elsewhere in the Bible and the Gospels to talk about how the disciples took the outer garments off of their body and threw them on the colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem in. Remember that scene? So they took the outer garments off and they threw them over the colt. That's the same word used here when it says, "Cast your anxieties on God." And so the word picture is of you and me taking our fragile and personal fears and shortcomings, grabbing them from ourselves and throwing them on God. And so add this up. You got fears and shortcomings and the call to finally get honest about them. Then as you become aware of them, you grab them and throw them at God. That's what he's saying will create humility in you and me. And all I can tell you, folks, is that after 25 years of being a Christian and probably less years of living this, but sure trying this, I can tell you what an awesome way this is to create humility in your soul. To finally be aware of and honest about and even vocal about to God and to those close around you, your fears and your frailties and your shortcomings. To get them out and to give them to God and even give them to him in the realm of community. And you know what I've found? Is that the opposite is also true. Is that if you live in a state of Denial and not wanting to come clean about your fears and your insecurities and who you really are, then you're about to meet uh, humility's ugly cousin, and her name is Pride. And we all know what that feels like when we live in denial. That's why I say when you're humble, you're honest about your fears and your shortcomings. I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but it's not just Christmas season right now, but but uh, arguably, maybe even more important, it's football season, amen? And it's not more important, so, um, but I sure do love professional football, you guys got to know that. In, in fact, I, uh, I, it's my favorite sport, I watch it all the time, and, and it's really one of the few luxuries that I allow myself to do, and, uh, and I really enjoy it. And hands down, one of my favorite professional football players is a guy by the name of Brett Favre. And the reason that I love Brett Favre is because he's about my age and I would argue that anybody that can play professional football at my age is worth liking. Amen. I mean, this guy is just a fierce competitor. As you guys know, some of you know, he retired this past year from the Green Bay Packers and said, "Nah, I don't want to retire." And they didn't take him back and now he's playing for the Jets, right? And and just doing a great job. No, is it the Jets? Yeah, okay, good. I get confused up here sometimes. And uh I really like watching Brett Favre. So here's the deal, on September 30th, 2007, uh, Favre was playing for the Green Bay Packers, and on that day he broke Dan Marino's longtime record for the most touchdown passes ever thrown in NFL history in one's lifetime. He exceeded 421 touchdown passes. Imagine that, folks. 421 and now still counting touchdown passes. That would be like me preaching 421 killer sermons. I mean, do you all know how long that would take for a pastor? Assuming that a pastor preaches a killer sermon every Sunday and assuming that a pastor preaches, say, 42 times a year, how long would it take? Carry the one 10 years, right? And so imagine that. What a feat for Brett Favre. 421-plus touchdown passes, leads the NFL in the record there. But then, interestingly, two weeks later, in October of 2007, Favre broke another record. He threw his 278th interception, and he became the all-time most intercepted quarterback in NFL history. Let that sink in a moment. Within a two-week period, this guy held the record for the most touchdown passes ever thrown by anybody and then two weeks later became the most intercepted quarterback in the entire NFL history I mean he holds the best record and the worst record all wrapped up into one right and what's the point of that here's my point that's life have you found that yet that's life I mean, great successes, great accomplishments all bundled up with, like, miserable failures. That's me. That's you. That's the reality living in a fallen world. And what Peter is saying is get honest about that. Stop thinking that you're something that you're not. Because even if you hold the world's record for the most touchdown passes, you probably hold the same one for the most interceptions, right? That's who you and me are. And we're to get honest about that. And here's the cool thing, that when you get honest about this, it creates humility in you. It reminds you that you're fallen and human and finite and, quite frankly, not God's gift to the rest of the world. And it's good for your soul to be in this place. In fact, what I've personally found over the years is that when I can get really honest about my fears and shortcomings and find that humble place, I'm a lot less angry. I'm a lot less judgmental and I'm a lot less insecure and I'm more joyful and Kim tells me I'm more likable to be around when I'm like that. Isn't that incredible? I I remember an experience I had with this years and years ago. It was kind of a funny experience looking back, but um, I've always done the food shopping in my family. It's just one of the ways that I have helped Kim out since, you know, we had little kids and were overwhelmed in the early days, and so every Monday on my day, I often do the food shopping. And um, way back in Detroit, in the early 90s, I remember when they came out with those 10 or less express lanes that they now have at the grocery store. You know what I'm talking about? And so uh, I'll never forget the day they came out with that. I was coming home from just a long day at work, and I had to pick up just a few things at uh, Farmer Jack there in Detroit. And so I stopped there, and I had like eight things in my hand, and I'm waiting in the long line with all these groceries. And all of a sudden, I noticed, you know, 10 items or less, cash only. I thought, well, that is a great idea. So I'm walking over to that line there, and, and, and there were like two or three people ahead of me and i learned to do something right out of shoot and you can't convince me otherwise that i know every one of you have done what did i do next i counted the items in the person in front of me amen so i'm sitting there the very first time in line and i got eight items ten item line and there's this lady in front of me i'll never forget her face to this day and i'm looking she had 13 items 13. And we're not talking 13 doubles, because I know some argue that doubles, you know, how legalistic can you get? Like, oh, I got five pixie sticks, that doesn't count. No, it's 13 items, all different items, and I'm starting to fume. I really am. I've had a long day, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, lady, can you not read? Then it hits me, she can read very well, can't she? she knows exactly what she is doing. She counted, she knew she had 13 items and I'm sitting there going, that is just so unfair, that is so wrong, she's bound for hell, I can't believe that she has 13 items in a 10 item line and and I'm starting to get all red faced and you know I'm a pastor, so do you think I say anything? I'm not that dumb, of course not. I mean pastors feel these things all the time but we can't say anything because we look like more idiots than we are and so I'm sitting there in the line just sort of fuming, and we get through it, and I pay for my eight items. And I, and I get home, and, and Kim looks at me and goes, How was your day? And do you think I told her about anything that happened at the church? No. I said, You're not going to believe it. They have this new line at Farmer Jack, and it's a 10 item line and cash only. And I'm sitting there in line, and I got eight. I'm obeying the rules. Lady in front of me has got 13 items in there. She looks at me, and she smiles. Aren't wives wonderful? And she goes, you would do the same thing, and you know it. (laughs) And I looked at her, and I said, no, I wouldn't. I would not do that. She goes, are you kidding me? If you could get away with that, if you knew that nobody would say anything, you'd do that in a heartbeat. You're just like that woman. I looked at her, and I said, well, who asked you in the first place, right? (laughs) I'm walking away from her going, golly. So I go in my bedroom, and I'm fuming there and all that, and And what thought finally hit me, do we all know? She is right. I thought she's right, doggone it. She's exactly right, I would do the same thing. And I'll tell you what, since then, I've done the same thing, right? We all have, that's what that line is made for. Now there's something in that, and here's what it is. Some of you are thinking, what is in that? How many times have you found yourself, to be honest with you, getting frustrated at something and someone else that, doggone it, you do the same thing? Can we all relate to that? Happens to me all the time. All the time. You know, somebody doesn't let me in when I'm getting on the freeway. I'm like, well, that was rude. I do it. You know, somebody doesn't, the old famous, somebody doesn't hold the elevator door. You do it. I mean, I don't care how godly. Or you can be Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. All of us struggle with this at some times, right? And and here's what I find, and this is what's so cool about what Peter's telling us here, is is that when we find ourselves doing that, when we find ourselves realizing that that, that other people, that you're just like other people who bug you, I, I realize that I, too, am a hypocrite, and it somehow softens me toward those around me. When I finally get honest about that, when I get honest about the fact that I'm just like everybody else around me, So though I might not struggle with the exact same things they struggle with, but I struggle too, and I get in that humble place, and I admit my shortcomings, and I admit my fears, and I admit my insecurities, especially as a man. Men, listen close. I, I find that all of a sudden God's starting to create a humility in me that, again, is very good for my soul, and that my wife and my kids and even my fellow male friends and the staff at church and my lost neighbors, they all want to be around me because they sense something in me that's not like this world, but that's much more like Jesus. That's what humility does, you see, is it creates, it carves a character in you and me that makes us like Christ. I love how the great theologian Augustine said it almost 1,600 years ago. I mean, human nature is human nature. When he was writing his own spiritual biography, he said this, he said, and I quote, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. Let that sink in in a minute. My sin was all that more incurable because I did not think of myself a sinner. And that's a good word for each of us here today. That what will keep you humble is to remember your own sin and shortcomings. And the opposite is also true. What will keep you prideful is if you remain in denial. So what have we found today? We find that we are humble when we stand next to God under his mighty hand, realizing who he is and who we aren't. We find that we're humble when we get honest about our own shortcomings and fears, casting our anxieties on him. And as we get to the summit of Peter's words here on humility, he shares with us one last descriptor of you and of me when we're humble. You ready for this? And that is that when you are humble, boy, I love this one, you don't think that you're beyond falling. It's true. When you're humble, you become a person who realizes that you are not beyond falling. Uh, What's that about, you say? Look at how Peter goes on to wrap up this section, and then from there on, it's just closing words. He he says here in verses 8 to 10, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I know we got just a few minutes left here, guys, but but don't miss what he's telling me and you here. He starts off by telling us to be sober-minded. You don't want to overlook that. That word in the original language means well-balanced, not confused, very realistic. It, It pictures somebody who's kind of walking that center line between being really pessimistic on the one hand or overly optimistic on the other. We all know people like that, right? You got the pessimists that are like the eors among us but then you got these you know overly optimistic people all around you they're kind of like pie in the sky no good to anybody. And what Peter is saying here is that sober-minded people are those who walk the middle ground who are centered in their understanding of truth and reality. That's the key here. And so what is this centered understanding of reality that Peter's talking about? Well, namely that there's an enemy of the Christian, right? Pure spiritual evil, the devil, the evil one. And he's telling us that he targets Christians like lions target gazelles and zebras. And he definitely has the capacity to knock you down and to make you suffer, though other parts of the Bible tell us that ultimately God is going to help you win the war. But don't miss the fact that what Peter is telling us here is that none of us are beyond his schemes. None of us are beyond being knocked down. And the reason we know that is because when it says in verse 10 there that God is going to restore you, what does it mean that you're going to be restored if you weren't originally knocked down? Amen? So the reality is, is that if he restores you, he has to restore you from something. And so what he's assuming there, and he's already said it, is that the evil one has the capacity to come along and knock you off your feet, and to knock you down, and to to make you fall down. And so the idea is that the evil one can come at us, knock us down, but that God is in the business of restoring his people. And don't miss that Peter makes it very clear here that this entire scenario scenario is universal to all Christians. He says these same kind of sufferings, in other words, attacks from the evil one, are experienced by brotherhood throughout the world which simply means that your favorite long-time veteran missionary still on the field goes through this. It means that Billy Graham still goes through this, and Mother Teresa, when she was alive, went through this, that your favorite pastor, whether it be Daryl or Don Sinukian or Ed or now me, we all go through this. And the harsh reality is, is that if all of us can go through it, you're going to go through it. And to never think you're beyond falling. And the, such the cool thing about this, guys, is that when you get this, when you realize that all of us have this kind of vulnerability in our spiritual lives, again, not a necessity, but a vulnerability, this should keep us very humble. Peter's call is that each of us then would hit our knees and be sober-minded, sober-mindedly realistic and wide-eyed and unassuming when it comes to our spiritual fragility. It should remind us how much we desperately need God each moment of each day because without him our life would be utterly lost you know as i thought about this this week i thought man is the bible like replete with example after example of example of this or what i mean moses he was a murderer and then all of a sudden god redeemed him you say well i guess his 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 fallen days are behind him right well he didn't even get to enter the promised land remember that why because of pride and then you got David. You know, he goes through the, through the tough times of Saul and being chased and, you know, finally becomes king. And you think, okay, the tough times are behind him. And then he, then he falls with Bathsheba and Uriah. And you go, whoa, even a king, a man after God's own heart, does not I mean. And then you got Peter. I mean, Peter was the first one to recognize who Jesus really was. you was the son of God, you know, all this. And, and, and then he denies him. He denies him. After following him, leaving everything for three years. Folks, if that doesn't teach us that none of us are beyond falling, I don't know what is. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this, neither is Peter, as an excuse to fall. I mean, that's not the point. The point is to create a humility in us. And he's saying that a humble person is someone who who realizes they're not beyond falling, and it creates dependency and trust inside of us. As we hopefully, as I do, wake up every day and say, God, there but the grace of God, go, I, protect me today, Father. I'm going to walk close. I'm going to lean on you. And what a great day we have to cement that What again, this again, uh, then communion. In, in about three or four minutes, we're going to go to the communion table. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why do you think Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 commanded us to do the Lord's Supper over and over and over again, like regularly, until Jesus returned. Have you ever thought about that? Why? I mean, Jesus washed feet. He didn't command us to do foot washing until Jesus returned. Some of you are saying, thank you. You know, he, uh, he sent them out two by two. He didn't tell us to be sent out two by two till Jesus returned. Jesus told 40-plus parables. Uh, Paul never told us to tell parables till Jesus returned. So what is it about communion, the Lord's Supper, that is so important that Paul said, "Now do this regularly until he returns." What do you think the answer to that is? I think it comes back to this idea of humility, the fact that that the core of our Christian faith is God's humility. Philippians 2: Jesus emptying himself, becoming a man, coming to this earth as a baby, going to the cross so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life as well as a new lease on life and that the greatest act of humility we can do is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. I mean, the Lord's Supper, this this juice and this bread, are all about humility, Christ's humility, and then our dependence in humility. So what a great, great, great Sunday for us to celebrate this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, the fact that in our worship settings, that you have ordained, which include things like singing and things like preaching and things like fellowshipping, rubbing shoulders with each other, that then it also includes this wonderful ordinance that you have instituted called communion or the Lord's Supper. And so, Father, as we enter into this relatively or very holy time of uh, focusing our hearts and our minds upon you, I pray, God, we do so with humility. I pray, God, that some of us might have the courage to draw close to you during this time, to place ourselves under your mighty hand, so that we might be reflected by your majesty and realize who we aren't and who you are. I realize maybe some of us might need to use this time of communion to uh, confess some sin to you, to to apply the second thing we've learned here today, and that is to cast our anxieties upon you and to to get it out, to get honest, and to throw that, that outer garment at you. And Father, I think there's even some of us here today that need to apply the third thing that we've learned here, and that is to to finally own that we're not beyond falling, that uh, we're just as vulnerable as uh, any other human being who has feet of clay. So Father, I pray that as we go to the communion table, we would come in a humble state and uh, that we'd worship you as only you deserve, as our Lord and as our Savior, as the omnipotent one in sovereign control of everything. And so receive this act of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.